Good morning, and again, happy Valentine's Day to all of you. I, on this Valentine's Day, uh, some, for some it's a, it's a good day, and for others it's a hard day in different ways. But I remember back when my wife, Sherry, and I started dating, and it was one of our first, uh, first couple dates, and we got in a, we'll call it an argument, but you know, when you're falling fast for each other, it's really more like flirting. And so we got in an argument about my favorite candy in the world. Perhaps you've seen or tasted the Reese's peanut butter egg that come out at Easter. You know, it's like chock full of peanut butter, combination of chocolate peanut butter, best combination on the planet. Thank you, God, for this. But we got in an argument about, you know, I told her, hey, I've eaten five of these in one sitting. They're so amazing. And she was flabbergasted pretty much because she said, you know, those things have like 30 grams of fat. They're just packed full with fat, you know? And I'm like, no, there's no way there's even more than 10. You know, she's like, no, there's 30. So it was that kind of argument, right? And, um, And so the next day I go to the grocery store and I buy one of these and I look on the back and I look and it says 10 grams of fat. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to show her, right? No, I mean, that would not be the right thing to do. I'm trying to win her over. And so what I do instead, some of you are going to hate this story, but some of you, um, what I did is I actually got a, uh, a marker and I marked out 10 and I put 30, right? Eh, right, for some of you. Um, you know, and I brought it to her and I showed her and she was like, you're so sweet, right? I used to be a gentleman and would do things like that. But, um, but it was one of those moments I was kind of reflecting on because, you know, early on in a relationship, you sort of want the other person to be right, right? Like I wanted her to win. I was hoping she would win. And I wanted to say, no, you won. I didn't want to say, no, I win, I win, right? Now, fast forward my life, personal confession here, almost 13 years later, 13 years into marriage here, I do not actually have that same orientation. I know that might surprise you, but I want to win. I want to be right when we get into any kind of argument. And I think, unfortunately, that's often what causes conflict in a relationship, which might sound like a strange topic, conflict, to talk about on Valentine's Day, but here it is. It can lead us to greater depths of intimacy if done well. So when it comes to relationships, really, of all kind, whether you're talking about romantic or friendship or even roommates or coworkers, conflict, as we all know, is inevitable. And most of us, if not all of us, don't particularly like conflict. I mean, no one gets up in the morning and says, I can't wait to create a conflict or even face a conflict. I mean, some of you might like facing a conflict, but it's really only so you work through it and it's resolved. And one of the, one of the broken records I have heard over time in my life, and, and I've even said this on occasion in my life, oh, conflict. You're in a conversation, with, oh, conflict. Oh, yeah, I'm not good at conflict. Well, nobody's good at conflict. No one's at least great at conflict. Conflict is hard, right? So of course not. And the reality is for all of us is that we've had conflicts. We might be in a conflict. We're going to have more conflicts. It is inevitable. But here's the thing. Most of us have never been taught how to engage conflict well. So we've been left to figure that out on our own, more or less. And so we come to this series, two-week series we're doing called Relational Intelligence. And today, the topic is what I'll call necessary conversations. Or said another way, how do we navigate conflict in ways that build relational health in our lives? And the Bible has a lot to say about that. 
In fact, in one statement, Jesus makes this great statement that's chock full of wisdom. It's actually really simple, so simple a child could understand it, but we find ourselves not doing this very much. And it's in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And Jesus, right, he says these words, and, and what he's about to say is he's about to tell us when there's a relational breakdown, when there's something unsettled, or unresolved in a relationship, here's what I want you to remember. Here's what I want you to do. And if we practice what Jesus says here, and we'll look at a couple other places too, but if we practice this, our relational intelligence will go up and we'll begin to learn how to foster God-honoring relationships, how to cultivate relational health in our lives. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, if they wrong you in some way, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So here, I mean, Jesus is basically diving into in one sentence why we should go or face conflict, when we should go, and how we should go is all broken down in there. Now, Jesus says, okay, if we are sinned against, we should fill in the blank, share in your prayer circle what your, you know, person has sinned against you and what they've done. Yes? No. Share on Facebook in some vague post that you're hinting at someone who sinned against you. No, right? No, he says, quite different. (laughs) He says, go, right? If someone has sinned against you, then you are to go. Now, If we take a statement, we can kind of break it down like this, and then we'll dive deeper into it. His command basically is five things. If there is a conflict, which is really like when, because it's going to happen. Number two, go to the person. One translation says, number three, in private, right, or just between the two of you. Number four, to discuss the problem. And number five, for the purpose of reconciliation. So Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, and what he's really going to say is, I want you to acknowledge it and face it. Acknowledge it and face it. Don't avoid it, which we all find compelling reasons along the way somehow to avoid conflict. Many of us do. Me too. But the truth is, people fight. People argue. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot. Sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. Sometimes constructively, other times destructively. Some fights end in resolution and and greater depths of intimacy. And other fights, they they end in cold-heartedness and withdrawal, sometimes in escalating yelling matches. And sometimes these fights can cause a relationship to end entirely. Every single one of us has the capacity to both hurt someone else and be hurt by someone else. And that makes relationships complicated. It makes resolving conflict often difficult, which is why what Jesus says here is so, so important. Basically, Jesus is telling us that relationships will get messy at times because we're sin-marred, broken, imperfect people. No one does conflict perfectly. No one does relationships perfectly. And so we see what Jesus says in Matthew 18. And then if we jump back to another place, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, so same gospel about Jesus' life. And he says 
something about confidence from really a different angle. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. And by the way, the altar here in that context, people would have came from long ways away, walking miles and miles to come to the altar to do what they're going to do to, to, to make amends with God, to, to worship God. He says, if you find yourself at that altar, no matter how far you've come, stop. And he says, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come offer your gift. There's a, there's a connection that, that Jesus is making between our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And he's also saying this, when you take Matthew 18 and you take Matthew 5, essentially what he's saying is if you've been sinned against, it's on you to go to the other person and resolve it. And if you're the one who has done the sinning against, you also are to go. So we don't get out of it either way. In both cases, the burden is on us. If it's your fault or if it's their fault, Jesus says, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're not, you're, you're off the hook here. But if you're a follower of Christ, this is not optional. If there's something unresolved with your mom, if there's something unresolved with your child, with a friend, with a romantic relationship, with a coworker, it's on you to go. It's on you to go. And I know we don't like to go. I don't like to go. It's hard. It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's complicated. And we sometimes want to simmer and stew, don't we? Sometimes we just want to stay mad. Some of us want to pout. We kind of like pouting more than we want to face the person. And then thoughts go on in our head. Well, if I go, it might get ugly. So I'm just not going to go. I'm going to keep the peace. I might ruin the relationship. Or maybe you think to yourself, well, it's not fair because that person actually is the one more in the wrong, and so I'm going to wait until they come to me. I've done that many times in my life. It's not fair. Or we rationalize and minimize it. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Or we say something like, uh, you know, time will heal all wounds. Well, that's not a Bible verse, nor is it true. And so there's all these different thoughts that spin in our head and we mull over. And the truth is, we all have, you know, different personalities which all, and, and different family backgrounds, which all inform our approaching conflict differently. We have different thought processes, different approaches. And what I want to do for just a moment is I want you to kind of self-assess. I have five default approaches to conflict that you might find yourself in one or more of these. I know I do. Perhaps you resonate here as I go through. Some of us, for instance, are a peacemaker. Now, peacemakers think, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just be happy? And this image kind of cuts to it, sort of hugging the lion. They don't see the world. Peacemakers don't see the world as a threat. They see it as safe and sometimes too safe and not realizing there are hard and real difficult things to face and to engage peacemakers are not being deceptive when they say everything is fine, typically. They have a hard time accessing those feelings that are signaling something that is wrong, and therefore they're not as likely to engage the conflict that perhaps someone else is a lot more aware of. Peacemakers are great because they're lovable, and they bring harmony to relationships which we all tend to like, and sometimes we desperately need that. But their unwillingness to go beneath the surface and access those more difficult emotions prevents them from facing conflict and engaging deeper. 
Others among us are what might be called sulkers, which I know sounds like a villain or something, right? But, but I mean, you know, sulkers, you know what they are, right? This is sort of images, two of them that capture this idea. And unlike peacemakers, they're highly attuned to their dislikes or relational issues with somebody else. But of course, instead of working through it, they prefer to communicate their grievances through body language or perhaps the silent treatment. They want to be seen and understood, but their default is to try and achieve this through hinting rather than communicating directly. Now, there's some good things about all of these, and sulkers, at least you know when they're upset. At least they're readable when something is off, right? You don't have to wonder what they're feeling or thinking. It's out there. But sulkers need to grow in more direct communication and expressing the problem in words while resisting the urge to engage in silent treatment or, or communicate in some inappropriate, you know, emotional way. Okay? Number three, you have peacemakers, you have, you have um, um, sulkers, and then you have stuffers. Now, simply put, stuffers stuff. They keep all the uncomfortable feelings inside. The thing is heating up much like a teapot. And I actually made tea on one occasion and forgot about it. And for some reason, I didn't hear the whistle. I was like far in the other room. And I, all of a sudden, I did hear something. And the teapot had you know, gotten so hot and, and boiled, I guess. It was a ceramic one. And poosh, exploded, right? And, and that's sometimes eventually what happens with the stuffer. Perhaps it's because they're afraid that if they share their true feelings, they'll be rejected or because um, they think they're the only ones who experience these tense or unpleasant emotions, so they hold them in. And often people in their lives, they don't even know that there is a problem until one moment happens and there is this explosion or pouring out or implosion rather is probably a better word. Stuffers keep their emotions in so much that they end up steaming out like the teapot. Now, the great thing about stuffers is that they, in many ways, are willing to sacrifice what they are feeling or going through in order to maintain peace in relationships. I mean, that can be a positive thing in one sense. They don't want to burden someone else, which is perhaps even noble at times. But the problem is that holding your feelings inside is unhealthy. And if sufferers don't learn how to integrate their internal and external worlds, their burdens will inevitably fall on the relationships of those around them, create relational unhealth, become heavier burdens than what they should have been. Stuffers have to realize that their feelings are not a burden on others and that authenticity is the key to healthy relationships. Then you have number four, litigators. Some of you, and you know who you are if you're a litigator. And I sort of think it was like, you have the spiritual gift of arguing, right? We actually don't want to be in a conflict with you because we know you're going to win, right? Or at least make a great case. But, but they break, that, break it down so fast, so succinctly, that to argue with a litigator just seems daunting, my wife is a litigator, by the way. I'm a peacemaker, by the way, so that kind of doesn't go right sometimes. Anyway, a litigator sees conflict through the eyes of an analyst, not necessarily through the eyes of, heart, of the heart. You kind of feel like you're in a court battle with them. The great qualities of litigators are that they are clear thinking and they are passionate. Where they need to grow is scaling back on arguing their case and zooming in on the value of desiring others to be heard, understood, or to look deeper into the heart of what's going on rather than scanning the surface with analytical precision. 
And then number five, you have the screamers, or one might call them the yellers. Have a couple images coming up. You have the scream image, right? And then the, the, the other one there. But if the stuffer keeps everything inside and their external behavior doesn't match what is going on internally, the screamer is the opposite. Their external behavior is an exact reflection of what is stewing on the inside. They just feel compelled to let it all out there. The problem with this kind of authenticity is that it isn't tempered by the values of showing respect and dignity to the person they are expressing themselves to. It's a good thing to be comfortable with revealing when you're upset or sad or anxious or whatever, but when it is at the expense of someone else's feelings or sense of well-being, it crosses the line. There's this popular quote, you maybe heard it, the right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins. That kind of cuts right to the screamer. The screamer engaged with the right to swing, but must stop where it damages another person. Perhaps in different moments, you're different ones of those. Or maybe you just find yourself like, this one is me, and I resonate with that. And I think it's important, again, to identify your default approach so that you know what it's going to take to grow. For me, I have one of these, too, I mentioned. But, but a number of years ago, I, I, was, I was in a friendship, and we were like best friends, probably the best friend at the time that I ever had. And we got into a conflict. There was a rift in our relationship. Both of us had some level of guilt in that. Both of us, though, were peacemakers. We liked to smooth it over. We liked harmony. We basically liked to avoid the conflict, and we did. And over time, the tension in our friendship, we didn't pay attention to that tension, and eventually our relationship dissolved completely. Right, broke down over time and then dissolved. Why? Well, because I didn't do what Jesus said. I didn't go. I didn't do my part. In my mind, I was saying things like, it's not fair that I have to go. He actually has done more wrong than me. I avoided. Right? I blamed. I, I did all these things internally and never faced up to it. And that affected not only that relationship, but other ones in my life. I was a massive avoider. And I've learned along the way and, and grown in that. And this value is hard for some of us, however it plays out. But I love, for all of us, I love how Romans 12, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this to all of us. He says this, as far as it depends on you. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you, do anything and everything you can do. You can't control what they do, but you can control what you do. As far as it depends on you, no matter how hard it is, if there is tension, if somebody has sinned against you, or if you have sinned against another, if there's a tension, pay attention. And as far as it depends on you, go to the person. Seek peace. Seek reconciliation. I had a boss at one point in my life who, in essence, sinned against me. I was far from innocent. And in this case, I actually did go to him, tried to pursue multiple times, multiple occasions. Let's have a conversation. Let's sit down and talk through this. There's obviously something off. And he basically was a massive avoider. It never happened. I did everything I knew to do. And yet he didn't do his part. And even to this day, in, in one sense, it's unresolved. But here's what you can bank on. If you have a situation like that, and this is what I've experienced in this, even for those relationships that don't get fully reconciled, if you do, as far as it depends on you, do anything and everything you can to live at peace. If you do your part, 
It is possible to have peace about that relationship without having peace with that relationship. It's possible if you do everything you can do. If you want to be on a path toward building healthy relationships, you must make a serious commitment. This is what Jesus is getting. You must make a serious commitment to facing the relational breakdowns in your life. And along the way, you know what God does? Here's some of the good news. God uses those moments. He uses that tension, the friction, the the, the relational conflict to grow you, to stretch you, to form and shape you into who he wants you to be. He uses that if you open yourself up to that. He, He uses that to foster greater depths of intimacy and relational health. Conflict will come. It will come again and again. And we have to choose how are we going to handle it. Now, back to Matthew 18, where Jesus says this other thing. He says, he says this very clearly. Go to the other person. One translation says in private. This one says just between the two of you. So go directly to that person. In other words, no third parties. No third parties. Now, this seems obvious, right? You have a conflict with somebody, you go to that person. But we all know we are tempted to go to the third party and talk it through, right? We go to that person, and in our view, we go, hey, I just want to represent from a very neutral position about my friend who's done all these things, and, you know, I I just want you to give me some feedback, right? I'm like, this is unbiased, and, you know, basically, I want you to agree with me, the hint, hint, I want you to agree with me that he's pretty much, you know, a psychopath, you know, and I'm right, and he's wrong. Don't you agree, right? That's kind of what we want to do sometimes in maybe extreme form, but, but it's true. Now, does that mean it's never okay to go get wise counsel in a conflict? I don't think so. I think the Bible supports the idea of getting wise counsel in some situations. But we know the difference. We should know the difference at least of going to someone, a third party, and venting about another person, gossiping, slandering, talking bad about them. No one, that, no one wants that happening to us. We know the difference of that versus going to someone, a trusted friend or mentor or wise person to help process how am I going to handle that? Because a lot of times we go to the third party and we have no intention ever to talk to the other person. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not Okay. And there are instances in life where we get stuck. And Matthew 18 continues, and the two verses that follow, verse 15, talk about, yeah, if you do all you can do, sometimes, in some occasions, you bring another person or two in. And even in some cases, when it intersects the church and and some issue in the church, Jesus addresses, sometimes you bring a church leader or two into the process, but that's, you know, to be elaborated on another day. But Jesus is looking at us, writing to us right here, saying to us, I want you to sit down with the person that you have issue with, whether they've sinned against you or you've sinned against them, and I want you to face it. Use sensitivity, but deal with it just between the two of you. In other words, approach the person the way you want to be approached, because we all want that. We don't want to be talked bad about by someone else, and the person doesn't come directly to us. Now, one question that also emerges in this conversation is this. How do we know when to go? How do we know when, okay, this needs to be addressed? And I'll give you one word. It's typically almost always this, anger. When there's anger inside of you, anger is like a smoke detector, really. 
right? Everybody wants a smoke detector at their house. I mean, it's a good thing to have because when it buzzes, it signals that something is off. It might be external, like, hey, there's a fire. We need to do something about that. Or it could be internal, you know, in that beep, right? Every, like, periodic minute or something, beep, right? might be, okay, something internally, hey, we need to fix the batteries kind of deal. But something's off when that thing buzzes. And no one wants that thing to be buzzing all the time. So your anger is a clue, right, that something is off. Something needs to be faced. Anger exists to tell you something is wrong, and to move you to action. Anger exists so you will be motivated to make it go away. So you will be motivated to face the relational breakdown in your life. Now, there's two important questions around anger, I think. Why are you angry is the first one. And, and with anger, you know, something happens to us, we're sinned against, you know, or whatever, and there's a conflict and we have anger. A lot of times anger gets mixed up with other emotions. And we have to do the hard inner work of sifting through that. Because anger gets mixed up with hurt and sadness and frustration and confusion and all kinds of other emotions. And we have to go, okay, why am I angry exactly? And try to pinpoint it. And the second important question is, what do I want? What do I want? In the book of James chapter 4, James addresses this, brother of Jesus, and and he he basically says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Because you desire or you want and you do not get. You want something and don't have it, right? And therefore you're angry, and it says that produces quarrels and fights among you, James says. So when we get angry, you know what happens? We start thinking about how we can win, We start putting thoughts together, how we even at times can inflict pain or wound them back. And the Bible says, no, anger anger itself is not a sin. It's not wrong to be angry, but anger is a clue that you need to deal with something. And the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. And when we face conflict, sometimes we bring this sort of unprocessed anger or unclarified anger to the moment or, or anger that's like blended together with all these other emotions, and it gets off on actually what's happened. And our anger takes us awry, and we don't get a grip on our anger. It's a clue. It's a smoke detector. And we need to process it and deal with it in the, in the process of us handling our conflicts. And then we get to the conversation, right? Back to what Jesus says. Jesus says this, these words. In one translation, it says, point out, right? If they go and point out their fault or show them their fault. Now, this doesn't mean you hold up your finger and you go, this is what you did and this is what you did and you start yelling at the person and showing them their fault in that kind of way. That would be relationally unintelligent, by the way. One of the great challenges of, of conflict is, is I think in our minds we make it a confrontation rather than a conversation. I think this is huge. It feels like this confrontation, and most of us don't want a confrontation. We don't want to be confronted. And, you know, some of us, you know, sick ones among us like to confront maybe. Um, you can confront me later for saying that. But, but, yeah, I mean, confrontation, no one loves confrontation. But, hey, if we thought of it like a conversation, because that's what it ought to be. I mean, essentially, Jesus is saying, go discuss the problem with the person. And I know it's not easy to turn what feels like a confrontation into a conversation, but as a follower of Jesus, our task relationally is to engage conversations in our lives that honor God, that that foster relational health. So I want to give you real practically this morning five things briefly that when you get to that conversation 
If your conversations are laced with these things, it will feel a lot more like a conversation than a confrontation. The first is this. Always lead with grace and empathy. Always lead with grace and empathy. That doesn't mean you don't cut to the truth. But, but the scriptures tell us to give the person the benefit of the doubt. And, and empathy, some call it the long walk of empathy. Because right? it takes longer and sometimes it's harder. It's like instead of coming and just confronting the person, even if they're the one who's the 100% sinned against you one. Most people have some logical process or thinking that, they, that, that not saying it's right, but they, that got them, to do, got them to do or say what they did or say. So discover, seek to understand that person. And you know what it does? It softens the blow, right? It softens the conversation. Lead with grace. It says, scriptures say Jesus was full of grace and truth, but he was full of grace. He extended grace when there was sin to people, when, there was, when you've been wrong, extend grace. Because you know what? Flip it on the other side. When you're the one who's done the sinning or done the wronging, you want grace. You want grace. You want a second chance. You want someone to see it from your vantage point, not to justify it, but, but to gain greater understanding. So lead with grace and empathy. Number two, refrain. This might sound obvious, but a lot of times we don't do it. Refrain from accusatory language. Refrain from accusatory language. I mean, you come in with accusatory language of you did this and you said this. Immediately that person, and I'm guilty of this too, we get defensive. Versus if someone comes into the conversation saying, not this is what you did, this is what you did, but this is where I've been hurt. This is where I feel wrong. Can we talk about this? And that changes the whole tone of the conversation. Versus like if you go in, you're a jerk and you did this. It just never goes well. Number three, be truthful. And I would add, and clear. Be truthful and clear about what's being addressed. Now, I've grown a lot in this in my own life. I mean, I would approach conflicts if I did, in fact, approach them. And when I talked to the other person, I would sort of beat around the bush a bit. I would want them to read between the lines and hear what I'm saying, but I'm not really saying And that just doesn't help. It's usually not effective or helpful to the conversation. Speak the truth. Yeah, the Bible says speak the truth in love. Do it always in love. But you need to speak the truth. One person said along the way, don't leave out the last 10%. A lot of us, like the the, the feeler type, the tenderhearted type, the empathetic ones, we often are the ones who leave out the last 10%. And the last 10% is really important to express or articulate where we've been hurt, perhaps, what's gone wrong, what needs to be settled. And sometimes in the conversations, the language becomes blurry. And sometimes we even get off focus and secondary and tertiary things we're discussing, and we've somehow been derailed from the actual thing that we came to sit down to talk to the person about. And so I, my suggestion in that is to say, hey, look, I feel like we're talking about this now, or I think we're talking about this now. What I really want to talk about, can we get back to what, what we're really talking about here? And sometimes that happens, right? So you can be clear and be truthful in the moment. Number four, this one's perhaps the hardest. Be quick to apologize. I am guilty, like as of two weeks ago, maybe, soon, maybe more recent than that, but at least two weeks ago, of not doing this. If you have wronged someone, go to them and confess what you did. Own it. Apologize for it. We all make mistakes. Give yourself grace because God gives you grace and go and own it. And you know what that's called? It's called repentance. 
It's called repentance. And repentance is powerful both in our relationship with God, it's necessary, but also in our relationships with one another. Repentance is going to someone and saying, I was wrong. And that can bring healing and reconciliation in a relationship. Now, repentance is not going to someone and saying, I am sorry that offended you. Right? I've had this happen. Perhaps you have too. That drives me crazy, right? That doesn't count. In fact, that makes it worse. I'm sorry I offended you. I'm sorry that you're so sensitive that, okay, I guess I'll apologize. I'm sorry you're so small-minded, but I guess, okay, if that hurt your feelings, okay, well, fine, I'll apologize. No, that's immature. That's relationally unintelligent, and it's not repentance. When you have wronged someone, go to them and share that you were wrong and that you were genuinely sorry. And when you've been wrong and someone comes to you, or maybe you go to them, You say, I forgive you. You extend grace to their repentance. When they admit their wrong, freely forgive. That doesn't mean you trust them. That's a whole different level of conversation. But Jesus says, forgive as many times as it takes. You forgive. What repentance means is that we take full responsibility for what we've done wrong. We own it. We don't make excuses for our behavior And there's hundreds of them that we have access to and we're tempted to grab onto or articulate. I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, Sherry and I were in a conflict. And it was one of those conflicts, it's like, it's it's pretty much time for bed and something comes up. Don't you hate those? Because you're like, this is going to be a long night and a really hard day tomorrow, right? Maybe you don't go through those, but we do, right? So she basically gracefully confronted me, I don't know, 11 p.m. or something like that. Thanks a lot. But it, it was necessary. I was the one who was in the wrong, fully and completely. And I knew it, really. But as she brought up the conversation, I wasn't quick to apologize. I wasn't quick to say sorry. In fact, quite the opposite. I was quite defensive. I blamed her uh, to, you know, just, you know, to like, like justify my actions. I said, well, you did this to do that, to make me do that, right? As if it was her fault of what I did, right? And on and on it goes. I could tell you way more details. It would be embarrassing, right? But I'll leave it at that. Like, I wasn't quick to apologize. And eventually I apologized after many minutes and hours, really, of, of discussion. And, you know, I look back and I go, if I was more quick to apologize, because I knew I was the one in the wrong, and I didn't own my part, even if she did this much, you know, I wanted to like, like zoom in on the little, little bit that she did that wasn't, wasn't right or what I thought wasn't right. And, um, and, and I look back and I go, man, if I would have been quick to apologize, it would have changed that whole conversation. There wouldn't have been tears. There wouldn't have been the pain of all that, you know, and, and we resolved it and we reconciled, but man, it could have gone a lot easier if I was quick to apologize. And finally... Remember the purpose. And here's what I mean. The goal of conflict is reconciliation. Always. Jesus said, if he listens to you, he says, you have won your brother or sister over. Things have been restored. The goal in conflict is not to score points. It is not to win. It is not to be right. When there is a relational breakdown, our task for, as followers of Jesus is to pursue restoration, pursue reconciliation. And it's rarely easy, almost never convenient, but it's God's will for every human being. Not long ago, I was, I was driving in my car. And you know when you're trying to get over 
And it's like, you don't want to miss that getting over because if you miss it, it's like, you know, 17 minutes of roundabouts and U-turns and all that kind of thing. So I was trying to get over and the guy next to me wasn't letting me get over. You know, you've been there, right? Maybe you were that guy. I don't know, but um, he wasn't letting me get over. And so I just kept like nudging my way and I'm like, I'm going to get over. I'm like, you know, know, gripping on. And I basically cut him off and get over while he pulls out from behind me and he whips up right beside me. And let's just say this. He used a lot of sign language and verbiage as his window opened, right? And I heard it through my window kind of thing, right? And he just, you know, and he said, what's your problem, right? And he was like intense. And then he drives away. I thought, oh, this is time where you can resolve conflict right now, right? No, he drives away. Now, think about this, though. He did almost everything that Matthew 18 says to do when you think about it. I mean, did he acknowledge the conflict? Yeah, he acknowledged the conflict. With great clarity and passion, he did, right? (laughs) Did he go? Yes, he went. He was not passive at all, right? He took initiative. He confronted me. He owned his responsibility to speak up. Did he go to a third party? No, there was no one in his car that he was talking to. He was talking directly to me. There weren't travelers on the side of his car, and he was, you know, did you see what that guy did? No, he was right in front of me. His communication, quite honestly, was impressively direct. (laughs) I knew what he was feeling and thinking. He fully expressed it. And he got every step right except one. He wasn't pursuing reconciliation. And if we miss the one, if we miss that, that's all you take away today, is the purpose and goal of conflict resolu- right, Conflict is to pursue reconciliation. Dealing with relational breakdowns does not come down to simply direct confrontation. Because that doesn't always do good when there's a relational breakdown. In fact, sometimes it makes it worse. Sometimes it escalates things, depending on how that goes. And even in some cases, it leads to violence. And sometimes conflict can lead to tremendous relational damage. We all know this. And leave deep scars and wounds from people that never fully goes away. Pursuing reconciliation may not always result in the restoration of a relationship. But when you have worked through the conflict openly and humbly and lovingly and courageously and in accordance with what Jesus tells us here, you can have a contentment of knowing that as far as it depends on you, you've pursued peace. To reconcile means, in essence, to make peace. Reconciliation is about doing all you can to make it right. And if you do this, you are seeking to protect that which is precious, most precious to God, healthy community and relationships. And perhaps what drives this even one level deeper to the deepest part of this is when we look at Jesus. Because Jesus knew that things weren't right. He decided that we've sinned against him, but he's going to go. And it took him all the way to the cross to make reconciliation with us because we sinned against him, because we wronged him, because we made things wrong. We we created this separation from God and humanity and somebody had to go and make it right. And that's what Jesus did. He went to the cross to make it right so that God and humanity could be united once again so that we could have peace because God's greatest treasure is you. God's greatest treasure is people. And God cares more about relationships with each other and with him. That's his dream for humanity, that we would live in right relationship, in reconciled relationship with him and with each other. And there's this inseparable connection. So I have two questions for you as we close. 
The first is this, kind of the harder, a little bit uncomfortable question, but is there someone in your life right now? And there's a tension, there's an unsettled issue, there's an unresolved thing that you need to face. And Jesus' words cut right to the heart and say, you know what, whether it's their fault or your fault, sorry, you need to go. You need to go. And I have failed at this many times in my life, and I've tried to grow over time of doing this because I, by nature, don't face that stuff. Many of us don't. But Jesus is real serious. The Scriptures are real serious. As far as it depends on you, you pursue peace. And if you do everything that you can, you got to let that go. You can still have peace about it even when you don't have peace with it. And the second question is perhaps for less of you, but an important one. Maybe you've never been reconciled with God. But Jesus has come so that you can be reconciled with God. Jesus has come to say, you know what? You may have sinned against me. You may have wronged me. You have made, you have made things not right. But I have come in grace to make things right. He's our example. And the reason we reconcile and seek reconciliation with others is ultimately because he has made it right with us. For us to be reconciled with him, repentance is needed. God, forgive me. Wash me clean. Make me right with you. And you can pray that prayer in the quietness of your own heart and make things right with God today. Will you pray with me? Father, I just pause in this moment. And relationships matter. They matter to you. They matter to us. And when they're not right, we feel it. We know it. And sometimes we're scared of it. So I pray that you would infuse our community with courage and humility. I pray we would be people who lead with grace, who are quick to apologize, who live repentantly, who seek to be forgiven and to forgive others. And God, if that person that's sitting here today has someone on their mind, I pray you would give them the courage, boldness, humility, and everything they need to go to go face it, what they need to face. It might be really hard. It might be really painful, but give them that courage and humility. And for any in the room who have never made it right with you, God, I pray that they would say yes, even in this moment. Jesus, thank you. And I receive forgiveness from you. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness for all of us, the love that you pour out. And on this Valentine's Day, may we remember more than anything else of your great, abundant, amazing love for us that's wide and deep and high, beyond what we can even fathom or imagine. But may that pervade our souls and our lives like never before. And I pray that in Jesus' name for all of us. And everybody said, amen.